Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, the Confluence Investment Management Podcast. Today, we dive into the firm's geopolitical outlook for 2021. Our guests are Confluence Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady and Confluence Market Strategist Patrick Theron. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator. Before we begin, we want to make listeners aware that the written report, The Geopolitical Outlook for 2021, is available under the weekly Geopolitical Report tab, and you can find that on the front page of confluenceinvestment.com. Bill and Patrick, you've identified five themes that you will pay particular attention to as the team at Confluence Investment Management develops strategy for 2021. Let's discuss these in your terms of importance. And number one is titled, The Establishment Strikes Back. With the election of Joe Biden as president, you're sensing an attempt to walk back to some extent some of the more visible and dramatic foreign policy decisions of the Trump administration, in particular, the Trump withdrawal from multinational alliances, as well as the Trump decision to reduce monetary and military support for traditional pro-democracy countries and movements around the world. In other words, you sense a return, at least to some extent, of pro-establishment foreign policy and a reversal of what some may term a recent movement toward isolationism. Bill, turning to you first as we start our conversation, how recent is the isolation movement? When did America's commitment toward globalism actually begin to sour? Well, I don't think it's recent at all. Uh, President Obama had already started the slow withdrawal, but it accelerated under President Trump. To create a narrative for understanding foreign policy, we use Walter Russell Mead's archetypes. Mead postulated that there were four forms of foreign policy. Hamiltonian, which supports free trade and views foreign policy from the perspective of building markets overseas. Wilsonian, which argues that the world needs to use its power to expand democracy and implies a moral obligation to foreign policy. The Jeffersonian stance, which suggests the world is hostile to the American democratic experiment and thus should be protected from the world by limited interaction. And the fourth, which is uniquely American, is Jacksonian, which is similar to Jeffersonianism, except that it has an honor code, which suggests that the U.S. will mind its own knitting until some foreign power affronts the United States. Then total war should ensue. For most of the Cold War, American foreign policy was a mix of Hamilton and Wilson. Jeffersonians and Jacksonians were relegated to the fringe. But after the Berlin Wall fell, the Hamiltonians fell from favor and Wilsonians dominated. After the experience of conflict in Serbia and two Middle East wars, however, the Wilsonians were discredited to some extent. Obama was mostly Jeffersonian and Trump was about the most Jacksonian president, perhaps since Jackson. Biden looks to us to be mostly Hamiltonian, but he has selected members of the Democratic Party establishment for his foreign policy, which lean Wilsonian. So we look for more of a pre-Obama foreign policy. That's why we've characterized this new administration as something of a throwback. Who were globalization's winners and losers in America? Well, the winners were those who had the platforms to compete on a global stage. If you could leverage your talents globally, you had a much bigger audience and thus could expand your income. And if you provided services to those people, you did well too. 
Those who had to compete directly with low-cost labor abroad were at a serious disadvantage. Bill, you made a point in the written report that, in some respects, President Trump was simply a more emphatic proponent of foreign policies that President Obama favored. Go into this a little bit more. Could you explain a bit? Sure. Our take is that Obama was Jeffersonian and thus was much less open to American intervention abroad. Thus, the comment from his administration that we lead from behind during operation in Libya was expressed, which doesn't sound much like a hegemon at work. Obama did engage in aggressive drone strikes against terrorist figures, so he wasn't completely opposed to using force, but he did not want to involve or expand military operations abroad. President Trump was much more belligerent than Obama, but was also reluctant to commit troops, and he had great success in reducing the level of troop strength abroad. He also told Turkey that they should handle the Kurdish Islamic State problem. At the same time, he did engage in aggressive actions against Iran. However, what was overlooked, and to some extent wasn't mentioned in the report because it's forward-looking, is that the lack of U.S. response to the Iranian missile attack on the energy infrastructure of Saudi Arabia signaled that the U.S. no longer viewed the Carter Doctrine as operable. This was an enormous change and showed just how far American foreign policy had drifted. You alluded to this a few moments ago, but what does the makeup of Biden's cabinet reveal about his foreign policy intentions? Well, we view this as kind of bringing the band back together. It's a left-wing establishment cabinet that the second-term Obama presidency referred to as the blob. This means that he intends to conduct U.S. foreign policy on the assumption of U.S. hegemony. What might be different is that foreign nations have concluded that the primary trend in place since 2008 will eventually return, and so they will be much less open to cooperating. Do you think that in this respect, Biden might be somewhat out of step with a majority of the American public, particularly the American worker who has been hurt by globalization? It's a real possibility. As the Democratic Party establishment becomes increasingly dominated by the business class, the party is at risk of losing the American worker. Returning to pre-2008 policies would tend to confirm this. What particular obstacles must Biden overcome in any effort to reestablish a pre-Trump foreign policy? Well, first, he's got to get his cabinet through the Senate. The odds of that have improved. Second, he has to convince foreign leaders that this change will last. That will be much harder. And third, and most challenging, he has to convince Americans that this pass is worth the potential sacrifices. Without a unifying opponent like communism, that simply may not be achievable. Patrick, what concrete foreign policy actions regarding China might we expect from the Biden administration? Well, officially, no. He's nominated Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who reiterated a dollar policy that started when Bob Rubin was President Clinton's Treasury Secretary, which essentially calls for a strong dollar, but the term has no intellectual weight. Instead, it means that the U.S. would not use exchange rate manipulation as a policy tool. The hope was that by declaring a unilateral ceasefire, other nations would adopt a similar policy. They mostly didn't, but it gave the U.S. cover so when the dollar weakened that we could say it wasn't done deliberately. We are anticipating a weaker dollar and expect that elements within the Biden administration, namely Jared Bernstein, who's in the Council of Economic Advisors, has argued directly for an ending of the dollar's reserve currency status, which would lead to a significant dollar decline. 
Bill, is this desire for a weaker dollar a key departure from establishment foreign policy that dominated into the first decade of this century? Well, actually, dollar positioning among presidents has been pretty fluid. President Reagan, for one, was for a strong dollar before he wanted a weak one. Initially, President Clinton appeared to push for a weaker dollar under Treasury Secretary Benson, but eventually adopted Rubin's formulation. So there's really no evidence that a strong dollar means currency appreciation. It just means there isn't a deliberate policy goal to weaken the dollar. Well, we've spent uh, quite a bit of time on the first key trend that's outlined in the geopolitical report for 2021. Now, let's move on. We want to bring Patrick Fearon into the conversation as we discuss the second key trend, which is anti-China alliance building. Patrick, you've recently written several weekly geopolitical reports. I mean, they're coming out now on the relationship between the U.S. and China. And one of the points that interests me here is that Biden may want to continue the pushback toward China that was so evident under President Trump, but use a different method to do so. What differences might emerge between the two administrations? First of all, thanks, Phil, for uh, for having me. The biggest difference we think will be Biden's effort to confront China with the aid of an alliance or at least a network of alliances. Many such groupings are possible, uh, such as the Five Eyes Alliance of the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, perhaps expanded over time to include Japan or even India. Beyond that, Biden will probably also press China more on human rights than Trump did. When it comes to Chinese trade, technology, and geopolitical aggression, a lot of the groundwork has already been laid in terms of the Trump initiatives like trade tariffs. Those are now bargaining chips that Biden could selectively soften in an effort to induce better behavior by China. Patrick, what concrete foreign policy actions regarding China might we expect from the Biden administration? Well, we look for fence-mending with traditional allies and, and building new alliances specifically against China. We look for new sanctions and other punishments for human rights violations in places like Xinjiang and Hong Kong. We'd also expect further overtures to Taiwan, such as Biden's invitation to the Taiwanese representative in the U.S. to attend his inauguration. Finally, we look for a resumption of closer, high-level contacts with the Chinese and demands for better behavior before trade tariffs or other Trump actions are softened. Well, how might China react to all this? Well, initially, we think the Chinese will try to make nice with Biden. For example, they really didn't push back at all when Biden invited the Taiwanese rep to attend his inauguration, at least not initially. However, in the end, the Chinese will probably be unpleasantly surprised to see that a tough line against China has now become a common bipartisan policy of the U.S., and that could eventually see tensions start to worsen again. Now, in spite of uh, tariffs and, and other American actions to reduce the influence of China, the U.S. trade deficit with China appears to be growing. Is this going to change anytime soon? 
Well, one key thing to watch on that score will be the value of the dollar. If it keeps depreciating as we expect, it would tend to raise the dollar cost of Chinese imports and make U.S. exports more cost competitive on, on global markets. Over the longer run, that could help reduce the trade deficit again, although there's also a good chance that any near-term economic rebound from the pandemic would lead to a short-term rebound in imports and a short-term worsening in the trade deficit before it would start to improve. Patrick, can you characterize the challenge to the U.S. that the trade deficit with China presents? Well, to the extent that the trade deficit represents pain and lost opportunities for American workers, especially in manufacturing, it is a challenge. Historically, that's been one price the U.S. has paid in order to maintain its global hegemony. As we've argued before, however, Americans have tired of the deficit and its impact on the U.S., and that's one key reason why the Biden administration is likely to maintain a lot of the Trump administration's trade policy, especially regarding China. The need to acquire oil used to dominate U.S. foreign policy. Has this changed now to a need to dominate technology, and is that the key battleground, do you think, with China? Well, yes, in many ways, that's an accurate way to describe what's happened. Uh, technology, especially information technology, has become a key source of economic power, military power, and geopolitical power. Who's winning? Well, that's very hard to say, especially since there's no obvious way to measure or keep score. What is clear is that China had the momentum for quite a long time. It took a while for the U.S. and other Western democracies to understand and appreciate the intense Chinese effort to gain new technology uh, by hook or by crook, so to speak. Of course, we don't know what secret methods might have been used by the U.S. and the Western democracies to stop Chinese efforts or to punch back. All the same, it certainly feels like China was pretty successful in vacuuming up the world's technology until very recently. Let's move on to the third theme now, which is the Middle East, as we look at geopolitical issues facing the U.S. in 2021. And talking about the Middle East, we see some pretty big changes here recently. We see new alliances between Israel and some Arab countries as the U.S. appears to back away from some traditional commitments. Turning back to Bill, do you think these new alliances can stay the course? Well, we think they can because there really isn't an alternative if the U.S. reduces its influence. The Arab states need help. They don't trust Turkey or Russia. And so Israel is about the only alternative left to them. If America withdraws from its traditional Middle East relationships, couldn't Russia or Turkey or, or some other country, even China, step in to play a role to America's disadvantage? Well, Russia will and is already trying to play a role, but it just doesn't have the resources, we think, to maintain influence. Keeping the Middle East in order is really expensive. China doesn't have a big enough navy yet. Turkey's the natural hedgement. After all, the Ottomans dominated the region for centuries. The U.S. stabilized the region during the Cold War because it wanted to guarantee Middle East oil would be available to the free world. 
The loss of the communist threat reduced the immediate danger, but the U.S. was very dependent on the region for oil for its own consumption. That was addressed in the past few years through the expansion of shale oil and will be addressed in the future through either electrification or hydrogenation of the transportation sector. Simply put, the region just isn't a pressing issue for the U.S. anymore. It seems to me that the strong underlying force of these changing Middle East relationships is the fact that the need to acquire oil is no longer dominant. This appears to free the United States from some of these messier relationships. Am I correct? Yep. The advent of shale oil was huge, but the looming peak oil demand may even be bigger. Moving on to issue number four, North Korea kind of in the background recently, to what extent, or seemingly in the background, to what extent has the Trump administration been able to change the U.S. relationship with North Korea? Well, there was a lot of show, but unfortunately, very little change in in real substance. And this isn't a criticism of the Trump administration. The problem is that the basic goals of Washington and Pyongyang don't overlap enough to make a deal. Kim Jong-un would be making an enormous mistake to give up nuclear weapons. Just ask Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi about that. The U.S. would be crazy to simply allow North Korea to get a bomb without cause. And so to the Trump administration's credit, they at least gave a try to see if talks would work. But in the end, there really was no obvious path to resolution. What will be the approach of the new administration toward North Korea? Well, this is basically a problem that North Korea faces. The status quo works for everybody except North Korea. Thus, I would expect the new administration to try to keep Kim in his box, but not make any moves to provoke or change the status quo. Is there a tendency, at least recently, to overlook North Korea as a potential disruptive force? Yeah, a bit of fatigue has set in, and since there's no obvious solution, North Korea tends to fall from the news until they do something provocative. We watch for it, and thus it is always a risk. Issue number five, as we look at geopolitical issues, a possible rebound in the U.S. and world inflation. Patrick, let me address this question to you. What would be the short-term drivers of such a rebound in inflation? Well, the biggest short-term driver would be an economic rebound driven by mass vaccinations and an end to the pandemic lockdowns. Of course, prices for some goods and services will probably come down as things start to go back to normal. But others will likely rebound on the increase in demand, especially if the pandemic has reduced supply. The recent price rises for industrial metals and energy commodities is one example of the kind of increased cost we'll likely see. In addition, weather problems and increased purchases by China are combining to drive up agricultural commodity prices, while a weaker dollar is also probably making some imported goods and services more expensive. Do you see rising inflation stalling a U.S. economic recovery? Well, it's a risk on a couple of different levels. First, consumer demand can be sensitive to price hikes in essential goods and services like food or healthcare. So the current cost increases for food and energy bear watching. Separately, rising inflation could boost bond yields to the extent that they start to impede economic growth. For example, higher bond yields could potentially boost mortgage rates, which might take the wind out of the current housing boom. Now, we suspect the Fed would step in with yield curve control to stop a dramatic rise in yields. But if the Fed failed to act, rising inflation and rising yields could eventually become a problem. 
you pay particular attention to the Fed here. Now, if the Fed does adopt yield curve control measures to rein in bond rates, which asset classes might benefit? Well, if bond investors think the Fed has their back, they'd probably start buying bonds more avidly, potentially boosting prices and driving yields lower again. Real estate investment trusts or REITs could also benefit as yields start to look more contained. Finally, if the Fed holds yields steady and inflation posts a short-term rebound, inflation-adjusted or real yields would fall. And that's historically been very positive for gold and other precious metals. At the same time, there do appear to be some pretty powerful forces that may keep inflation in check long term. Does slowing population growth fill a key role here? Yes. Slowing birth rates, aging populations, and more tepid population growth are all likely to sap a lot of demand from the global economy over the coming years. And there's not much that policymakers can do about it in the near term. So even if we see increased regulation, higher trade barriers, or other inflationary developments over time, those demographic headwinds could well delay any rebound in inflation for some time, although we think there's a good chance that inflation could eventually rise again. Well, Bill and Patrick, we've covered a lot of ground. I, I wanted to take a few moments to look at some issues that didn't make your top five list and maybe explore why or, or, or why not. First of all, the fight against global warming, that did not make your top five list. Was it a close call? And, and either one of you who would like to answer, please go ahead. Well, I'll start. This is a yearly outlook. And, and thus, for 2021, it won't be a major geopolitical risk. However, I suspect in the later half of the decade, uh, it'll probably be on the list every year because an important element of the climate change debate is the generational impact. As the baby boom generation ages and younger generations gain power and influence, we think it'll be a bigger issue. I also noticed that our relationship with Russia didn't make the list, although North Korea did. Why not, especially in, in light of the recent Russian hacking of U.S. government agencies? Uh, I'll take the first swing at this. Patrick was a Russia specialist. I'm sure he'll have some thoughts, too. I felt Russia was a close call, but we really didn't see an escalation in the cards for the upcoming year. Russia has been focusing, it appears to me, on getting a better handle on its near abroad. It's got working control now of Belarus and Georgia, the eastern part of Ukraine, and now Armenia, Azerbaijan. Putin will always be a thorn in the side of the West, but I just didn't see him doing anything radical. On the other hand, if oil prices rise a lot this year, he may make the list next year as higher oil prices will boost his power. Yeah, Phil, one, one thing I would add also is that uh, just real recent developments uh, have pointed to some potential domestic instability or, or political tensions with opposition activist Navalny, and who you may remember was uh, poisoned, presumably by the Russian government last year. Now that he's back in Russia and has been arrested, but is still able to generate protests in uh, favor of him and in favor of democracy, you know, that's a risk that we will have to keep an eye on over the course of the year, especially remembering that later in the year there are uh, parliamentary elections in Russia. Yeah, that'll certainly be enough to grab a lot of Putin's attention and maybe divert him from international aspirations. 
Possibly, uh, although, you know, it's always a possibility that he could also look for some kind of uh, a foreign adventure to uh, take people's minds off what's going on domestically or to generate patriotic unity. So it uh, could go either way, actually. I'm also wondering whether, turning away from Russia now to another possible issue, whether there will be lasting structural changes in our culture as we emerge from the pandemic, changes that might be lasting enough to influence government policy. What are your thoughts on this? Well, that's a really good question. The reason it didn't really make it in was it's a little bit too early to tell. One thing we've been thinking about is that we may see less travel because of the pandemic, or we could see a resurgence later this year. And the new variants that have emerged, frankly, increase the odds of that. The other thing that we probably will be writing about next year is, you know, SARS-CoV-19 moving from a pandemic to becoming endemic. In other words, we just have to live with this thing that every two or three years you get a code shot and it eventually evolves into something similar to influenza. It is not at all uncommon for these kind of diseases, these infectious diseases to go from crisis to something we kind of deal with. I mean, you want a classic example of that. AIDS was a scourge and now it's kind of a manageable condition. It hadn't gone away. In fact, we don't even have a vaccine for it but antivirals have pretty much turned it into a disease that one can manage. So we didn't put it in the report, frankly, because we're kind of knee-deep into it. And, you know, it is too early to tell. I would not be at all surprised, however, later this year, if that in and of itself doesn't become a geopolitical report. As we we conclude, let me try to sum up a little bit. There appear to be some very strong trends that drive geopolitics in ways that overshadow and influence actions by individual countries. I'm thinking of less reliance on oil, slowing population growth in many countries, a need to win the technology war, and protect information. I was wondering, Bill and Patrick, are there other trends that you, as we conclude, might want to add to this list? Well, I'll start. The one I am watching with great interest is the rise in commodity prices, especially grain prices. Foodstuff prices peaked in around 2010, interestingly enough, coincided with the Arab Spring. If our analysis of monetary policy in the developed world is right, the dollar calls correct too, the chances for stronger commodity prices is elevated. And thus, next year we may be discussing the new world spring that was triggered in part by rising grain prices. Patrick? Like I mentioned, I think that just in, in the last couple of weeks, the uh, the developments in Russia, just to reiterate, I, I think that bears watching. But one other thing related to climate change that I think could potentially be something that we all want to pay attention to. And that's the fact that, you know, even though people focus on the costs and the disruptions and, and the risks related to climate change, but what I would underline is that in addition to all that, there can be opportunities. And I keep looking for any trends where people start to uh, try to find ways to make money off it. Uh, you know, for example, if the climate is warming in Canada and all of a sudden it's possible to grow new crops or develop lands that otherwise were marginal, you know, that could be pretty important for a lot of countries and uh, it might open up a whole new range of uh, potential opportunities that investors may eventually start to focus on. 
Thank you, Bill and Patrick, for your comments. We'll be diving into the Confluence investment strategy for 2021 in in a future Confluence of Ideas podcast. We want to remind everybody that our report is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our guests today have been Confluence Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady and Market Strategist Patrick Theron. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. Our website is confluenceinvestment.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Confluence IM. Confluence.